Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. Go ahead and turn to your Bibles. Uh, John chapter 14, that's where we're going to be as we continue our series, part three of uh, the Followers Trail Guide. And uh, in our culture, as the generations turn, there are more people in our culture choosing to believe in Jesus or choosing to believe in nothing really at all. A a new report by Pew Research Center was exploring religious trends in our society and pointing out that over the last 15 years, religious nuns, people who um, don't claim any religious affiliation at all, has doubled from 15% of the population in 2007 to about 30% today. That's a huge shift. The fastest growing belief system in our, uh, in our system is uh, disassociating from any formal belief system. So basically, every year, if you look at this, every year one more percentage point of our population identifies as not wanting to have any formal religious label placed on them. Meanwhile, Christianity is said to be losing about 1% of the population each year as well. It's pretty wild, right? There's all kinds of rabbit holes, there's all kinds of explanations, things that we can dive into to try and explain this or dissect it and try to figure out what that is and why. But let's just consider the big picture here. Let's just think about this. 1% means that each year about 3 million people have decided to answer the basic question of humanity. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? How should I live? These people are looking for those answers, and they're saying, I'd rather come up with my own answers than buy into the other options available. Not that many of these people are deciding, hey, I'm going to jump ship, and um, I'm going to join this camp, or hey, I'm going to go join the Buddhist religion, or follow Muhammad, or I'm going to go to, you know, this or that. Not atheists, nothing like that. It's not that they're trying to jump ship and do that. But there's about 3 million people each year that are saying, I don't think Christianity is the way. I don't think Christianity is the way, and by the way, I mean the way to truth, the way to forgiveness, the way to salvation, the way to purpose, the way to love, the way to live, the way to peace, the way to God. And we need to recognize that most people who choose to disconnect from some kind of um, traditional Christian association, um, they're doing this not because they don't believe in Jesus, Not because they don't believe in the person of Jesus, of who he is. They usually are confused by who Jesus is, by what the Bible actually says who Jesus is. The main issue is their distrust in the church as an organization. We all know that as an organization, the Christian church has been a popular target to pray on, right? 
It's been a, a target. We usually have a target on our back. But while the church is a popular target, it's not like these people are disowning Jesus. It's not like they're demonizing Jesus. In fact, most of them, if you talk to them, they would say that Jesus is a great person to follow, that he was a great teacher, that he was a great person, maybe he was a great servant in his community. And they actually believe that Jesus was a good person, that he was an example, maybe a standard to live your life by and follow. But there's an infinite gap between admiring the way of Jesus and actually believing that Jesus is the only way. There's a gap between that. And Pastor Kyle Eidelman reminded us in his book, Not a Fan, that this is the difference between somebody who's a fan of Jesus and someone who is a follower of Jesus. Someone who's a fan or someone who's a follower. He wrote this, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Jesus. Let's put it this way. The difference between a fan and a follower is one word, faith, right? If you look at the Lions even, you can be a fan of the Lions or you can have, be a follower. You can have faith in them. I don't know who does, but we're not talking about an empty knowledge faith, not a simple recognition faith. We're talking about the faith that God demands is a belief in the way of Jesus that results in rejecting every other way of life and committing to his way. We have to reject every other way of life. Our culture believes in a lot of things, doesn't it? Our culture believes in money, in uh, fame, in uh, sex, in popularity, in politics, and they put their belief and faith in all of these other things. And what happens? One reason why people are literally falling apart or getting all worked up is these things are failing them because they put their belief in something that is something other than God. It's an idol in their life. Jesus is very specific about that. He says, have no other idol in your life. They're putting their faith in the wrong things, and these things are letting them down. We have to put our belief in Jesus. John 14, 1 says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We're in our third week of working through Jesus' final discourse on his disciples, um, or to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. And the night Jesus spoke these uh, words to his disciples, what they had believed in was all wrong, right? They had, it started to cave in on them. It started to come crashing down. And Jesus already said one of them would betray him. He said he was uh, leaving them, and where he was going, they could not follow and he said that Peter would deny him. So understandably, the disciples were probably going through this thing that they're like, okay, everything's falling in on us. They were troubled. They were probably understandably troubled. Have you ever been in that, in that uh, circumstance? Have you ever had that moment? Have you ever had your uh, calmness and mind ripped away? Have you ever had anxiety sink in where it literally grips your soul? So the question I have for you guys today is, what are we supposed to do when the way we were headed doesn't seem certain anymore? What are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do when things don't go the way we actually thought they were going to go? He has a simple answer for us. It says, believe in Jesus. 
It's the only way. Believing in Jesus sounds pretty generic, right? It sounds so generic. So I want to dive in and get a little more specific here. The first way he says, he says, believe I will bring you to the Father. John 14, 1, if you look in our passage, says this, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father Father, except through me. Let's be honest, when we look at that verse, sometimes following Jesus and his ways don't seem possible. Sometimes when we look at what we are supposed to do or how we are supposed to follow Jesus, sometimes they don't look possible. I don't know about you, but when you look at politics, when you look at the world around us, when you look at all the things that are happening in our world, it looks like it's on fire, right? It looks like it's completely falling apart. I mean, look at inflation. It's literally climbing and, and it may have our bank accounts empty. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're going through a relationship that just doesn't make sense. And it's, it's crumbling around us. And, and maybe it's a sickness that we're walking through. And we see somebody who's sick. And all these things are happening in our life. And they don't make sense. And it looks like the world is completely on fire. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but the anxiety sets in imagining how this will all turn out. And then Jesus tells my heart not to be troubled. I don't know about you, but I'm like, wait a minute. Don't be troubled? How am I supposed to do this? I'm an anxious person. Literally, every time I even get up here, I'm anxious. I'm like, God, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to do the right thing? Uh, Lord, I'm so anxious. I overanalyze things. I literally think things through. And so I constantly am anxious about things and how they're going to turn out. I'm the type of guy that likes to pull up my bootstraps and says, I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to do this. And I'm the, I'm the guy that can do this. Let's just do it, okay? It's got to get done. And all the while, Jesus is saying, wait, wait, you're not in control. I'm the one that does this. It's crippling sometimes. But did you know that it's not actually God asking? It's not saying, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm, you know, you should, probably shouldn't. No, it's a command. Jesus actually gives us a command that means don't let your heart shudder. Don't let there be fear. Don't let there be anxiety in your heart. And sometimes that looks impossible. How can we keep our hearts from being troubled? Jesus' simple answer is this, believe in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. And that's really all there is to it. He's commanding his disciples, he's commanding them to remove the fear from their hearts and uncertainty and replace it with the confidence of the Father. And why is he asking them to do that? Where is the confidence of the Father? If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, right, as believers, we know what happens. He wins. In the end, we spend eternity with our Father. 
And so that's where he goes on in this verse and he says this when he talks about the Father's house and the many rooms. The idea of that is a metaphor that's talking about the end result of our faith. He's saying, hey, the end result of your faith is, hey, you're going to be in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of God, because in my Father's house are many rooms and I'm preparing a place for you. God's children will dwell in God's dwelling place. If you've heard this verse before, maybe like me, you've heard the King James Version growing up, right? Where it says, in my father's house are many mansions, right? I know growing up, I heard that and and my image of what God was going to prepare for me someday maybe missed the point completely. I don't know about you, but when I heard mansions, uh, I always thought, yeah, there's going to be a mansion on a hill somewhere, and, and I love to farm, so I, we live on a little a hobby farm here in, in Oxford, northern Oxford, but man, I was like, God's going to have a mansion someday for me in heaven, and it's going to be so incredible, and, and I'm going to have this mansion with a nice brick paver patio and a big rock fireplace, and out the back, there's going to be like a mountain, and, and there's going to be this pasture with cattle on it, and I can just sit there and sip my coffee every morning, watch the cows. On a, on a perfect pasture because, you know, there's no weeds in heaven, so it's going to be perfect. And so I had this view of what a mansion was going to be like. And it misses the point completely. It's not all about us. It's about God. Did you know that the King James translation, King James Version translation, is based upon a Latin word, and I don't want to slaughter this, it's mansionas which didn't refer to a large, impressive house. But it actually means stations and resting places. See, the focus on us misses the entire point. When we focus on us, it misses the entire point. The hope that helps us through a troubled heart is that disciples of Jesus will be brought into the Father's house. See, it's not all about a place. It's about the person. It's about being in the presence of God. It's not all about a place. And here's how Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. We know this. He goes to the cross, right? He goes to the cross. He enters the grave. He empties the grave and he ascends to the Father. And just as sure as he lived, died, rose, and ascended, he will come again for his own so that we might be with him. Amen? One day we're going to be with our Father. We're going to be in his presence. And that is the greatest thing. If you think about the prize of heaven being a mansion on a hill somewhere, you're totally missing the point. It's not all about the place. It's about the person. He then goes on and says that he's already said to them before, he says this, where he's going and the way to get there. The where is the cross and the way is his way of life and faith. Here we see the one that one of the disciples just isn't getting it, right? I love Thomas. Thomas, um, he's probably a lot like me. He just doesn't get it. Um, He says this, he says, wait a minute, We don't know where you're going. And if we don't know where you're going, how do we know the pathway to get there? How do we know the way? It doesn't make sense to us, Jesus. Like, where are you going? 
You see, Thomas wasn't thinking straight. He, he's literally what Paul's writing here in Colossians 3, 2. It says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Thomas was looking only on one level. He was literally looking on an earthly level where Jesus is looking on multiple levels. And he's trying to explain this to him. He, to help him, Jesus makes one of the most famous statements in all scripture. There are seven statements of Jesus about himself that start with, I am. They all help us to see who Jesus is and why he came. I am is significant because it's how God refers to himself. As the one who is, no beginning, no end, the I am. So Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. It's me. What he says here is that his life, death, resurrection, and ascension are the way to God. His way is less about a road or a path with their thinking earthly. It's less about that. It's more about a way of life. And there's no other way. The truth is, is we know God because we know Jesus. Not that we know about Jesus, but we actually know him and are known by him through faith. It's the difference between the follower or just being a fan. You see, we have to know Jesus himself. I think like if I was to live with my wife and I never talked to her and I never spent time with her and I just knew who she was... That'd be one thing, right? But if I actually spend time with her and I actually get to know her, and and that's what we have to do with Jesus. We have to spend time with him. We have to pray. We have to listen. And when we spend time, we actually know Jesus. And then we start to fall in line and we start to actually live in the grace that he's given us. We start to actually live the way he did. And our identity becomes him. It's the difference between knowing him and knowing about him, a follower or a fan. Did you know that Jesus was troubled too, though? The same word is used just a few paragraphs ago in chapter 13, verse 21. John tells us that Jesus' heart was troubled when he knew Judas had turned against him. His heart was troubled. Think of his circumstances here. Judas betrayed him. Peter was going to deny him. The Romans were going to arrest him. The Jews wanted to kill him. The Father allowed it all to happen, and Jesus knew it needed to happen. And do you think he had reason to be troubled? Do you think he had reason to kind of have some anxiety there? I know I would. But it says he believed in the Father. He trusted his Father. He thought about his future with his Father. And in the same way, we have to look to the Father. You can believe in the Father even though your world may look on fire. Even though there's hard times that you're walking through. Even though there's circumstances that you don't understand. We can actually look to the Father and understand that He is a good Father. And we can follow Him. It's not just about a place. It's all about the person, the I Am. And the great I am is an infinitely greater prize than just a place. The second thing we see is believe Jesus will uh, show us the Father. We continue our passage here in verse 7. It says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip said to him, 
Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Uh, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does uh, does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. He dives a little deeper into what it means to know the Father. We know that the Father is like, or we know what the Father is like because we know what Jesus is like. If we look at Jesus' life, we know what the Father is like. If you want to know what the Father's heart is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father's will is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father would say, listen to Jesus. I think people have so many confusions about what God is like, or who he is. And the Christian story is simple here. We know what God is like because we know what Jesus is like. If we look at Jesus, we know what God is like. Now, Philip, Philip is one of these guys that was with Jesus from the very beginning. If we see that in John chapter 1, verse 43 through 46, we see that Philip was with Jesus from the very beginning, but his view of Jesus is still way too small, right? He asked Jesus for some theophany, a visible manifestation of of God to humanity. When all the while, God in the flesh was standing right in front of him. He had a front row seat. Sometimes we can be people of faith and still have incredible blind spots, right? We can have blind spots. So Jesus reminds them, when I spoke, you heard the Father. When I was at work... The father was working. But how could Philip, how could they not see this? What were they missing? I mean, literally, they had a front row seat. They had walked with Jesus. They had seen him do miraculous things. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him do miracles. And so how do they not get it? I think for me, when I put myself in that situation, I'm like, I would hope that I would get it because I've seen all these incredible things that Jesus had done. And yet he still says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Like, it wasn't enough that I did all these other things? Like, what are you talking about, Philip? You have a front row seat. And the truth is, so do you and I. We have a front row seat to what God is doing. I don't know about you, but we've seen God at work for years. He's worked in your life and my life. He, he, keeps, or he kept you. He's pursued you. He's pursuing you now. He's revealed himself to you. He's spoken to you. He's protected you. He's chased you down. He's still chasing you down. He's surprised you. He's been gracious to you. He's been patient with you. He's been long-suffering with you. He's listened to you. He's hurt with you. He's heard you. He's heard you when you don't think he's heard you. He's never left you. He's never failed you. He's been with you before you took your first breath. He gave you the breath to sing in the presence of him today. He'll be with you uh, for the last breath, and he'll breathe new breath back into you again. He knows you. God knows you. I love Psalm 139. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me 
and you known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts after, or from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem uh, me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, it is uh, high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your, or your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He knows you. God knows each and every one of you. He knows me and he knows you. And listen to what he's saying and trust what he is doing in you. Even when the way seems murky. Even when you're walking through that thing that you just don't understand. Even when there's trouble and you're like, man, God, it's out of control. He knows we can trust in Jesus and in the way of the Father. The last thing he says to us is believe Jesus will glorify the Father through us. That he will glorify the Father through us this is a big one. Verse 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What he's doing now is he's moving from the works of the Son of God and more moving towards the works of the children of God. That's us, the disciples. He's telling his disciples, you've witnessed what God has done. You've seen all of these miraculous things. Now you are going to participate in what, is, what God is going to do, in what he's already doing. It's basically your turn now. I think for the first thing that comes to my mind, and I'm probably several of you and maybe even the disciples, is how will I do greater works than Jesus? He says it right there. How will I do greater works than Jesus? The simple answer is you won't. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do greater things. The greater works don't equate to greater miraculous signs than the miraculous signs that Jesus performed to demonstrate his identity as God. You're not going to walk on water more than he did. You're not going to heal people more than he did. You're not going to raise people from the dead more than he did. You're not going to do all of these things. You're not going to turn water into wine. You're not going to, you know, feed thousands of people with a little bit of food. Those things you are not going to do greater than he has done. Now, can he do those things? Absolutely. That's not what I'm saying. He can do those things if he chooses. But that's not what we're talking about here. From the very beginning of the church, the greater works have been understood to mean the success of Jesus. Disciples, making disciples, making disciples, 
making disciples, making disciples. Think about it. Do we find more miraculous signs in the book of Acts, written over decades of a time, than we do in the gospel that was written a little over three years of a time? No. We don't see the more miraculous signs, but the truth is, it's really not even meant to be a comparison. The work of the Son is reflective of the Father, and the work of the children is reflective of the Son. So it's all because of Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, and in the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what he says here. Because Jesus went to the Father, the Holy Spirit was sent to empower his disciples. That is God's presence in us through faith, the third member of the Trinity. And what greater works have the Son done, or has the Son done through us as we've followed the Holy Spirit? When Jesus left the earth, he left about 120 disciples. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 disciples were made. 120 turned into 3,000. After one spirit-empowered sermon, the number of disciples grew 25 times. God works his purpose through his people, right? Listen to how the ESV study Bible describes this. It says, these greater works include evangelism, teaching, and deeds of mercy and compassion. In short, the entire ministry of the church to the entire world beginning from Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to Jesus' following or followers than during his entire earthly ministry up to that time in Acts 2.41. These works are greater Not because they are more amazing miracles, but because they will be greater in their worldwide scope and will result in the transformation of individuals' lives and of a whole culture and societies. This is what it's all about, guys. It's disciples making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. Think about this. If I was to disciple two people, and those two people went out and discipled two people, we got four people, right? And then those four people went out and discipled people, and they got eight people, and then the next is 16 people, and then 32 people, and I'm going to stop there, but it keeps going, right? It literally keeps going, and it's disciples making disciples, making disciples. And then we get to where he says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And that phrase can be misunderstood just like the one that says greater works than these will he do. It can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. Jesus is not a genie in a lamp. He's not somebody that you just rub the lamp and say, okay, what are my three wishes? This is what I'm going to do. God, just do it. He's not a a on-demand prayer that we can click and say, God, I'm praying for this, now go ahead and do it. That's not what he's saying here. It's submitting our will to the will of the Son. This is connecting our hearts and words and actions to the heart, words, and actions of Jesus so that we are connected to our Savior as he is connected to the Father. We have to submit our will, our ways, under his That's why it says we ask. We don't tell him. We ask, which means we are placing ourselves under the agency of God. We aren't the decision maker ultimately. He is. And we ask in Jesus' name, which means we are placing ourselves under the authority of Jesus 
He was the one who said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this kind of prayer cannot be self-serving. It can't be self-serving in any way because to pray in Jesus' name is to deny yourself and adopt the character of Christ. We have to deny ourselves and adopt the character of Christ. If your prayers are more about you and your mission than his mission, or if they're more about your comforts than his compassion, you're completely missing the point. And I wouldn't expect much movement out of those prayers. And as we pray to the Father through the Spirit, in the name of the Son, he will meet us, listen to us, and respond to us in whatever way will bring him glory. It's about him. It's not about us again. So my question again is, what are we supposed to do when the way we were headed doesn't seem certain anymore? When those things come into our life and they throw the train off the tracks and we're like, man, I just don't know where to go from here. We believe Jesus will bring us to the Father. Believe Jesus will show us the Father. Believe Jesus will glorify the Father through us. And so what or who are you believing in today? The book I talked about, Kyle Eidelman, talks about a story of Nicodemus in his book. And, and think about Jesus with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish Pharisee, a ruler, a leader, um, who was curious about what it would mean to believe in Jesus. And Jesus told him that to be his follower would require a commitment that would cost Nicodemus a great deal, maybe everything. In fact, it's true all throughout Scripture, right? Nowhere in Scripture does it say, if you become a follower of Jesus, it's going to be easy. Don't worry about it. God's got it. Although we're not supposed to worry about it because God's got it, right? Right. But it doesn't say it's going to be easy. It doesn't say it's going to be a cakewalk and we're just going to walk through life now that we've accepted Jesus into our life and, and it's going to be, oh man, I can just do this Jesus thing at night when I pray and I go to lay my head down. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week thing that you have to go out and live for Jesus and it's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be things that come up. But we can trust in the Father, and we can trust in who He is. And I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here today and you said, John, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus, period. Maybe that's the first step for you. Maybe you just have to believe in Jesus. Don't walk out of the door today without putting your faith and trust in Him. And if you have more questions, I'd love to talk to you. CT would love to talk to you. Jim would love to talk to you. But maybe for you, it's just putting your faith and trust in Jesus today to believe in him. Maybe for you, you're walking through something and you're like, man, I don't know how to get through this. Maybe you're troubled. You have anxiety like, like the disciples did and you're kind of confused and you need to just rely on the Father and understand that he's in control and it's not about us, it's about him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.